Welcome. My name is Sean Rais, and I'm just a kid from Harlem who God chose to show his favor and mercy through. I grew up in the late 80s, the early 90s, and I made a lot of bad decisions during that time. However, I was lucky enough to fall in love, right? I was lucky enough to fall in love and then choose to take another decision, another course of action. During that course of action, it took me through three E's education, experience, and expertise. So I've gathered those together, and those are the things that I'll be sharing you with here today, primarily in the areas of what we call BMPs. So that is branding, marketing, and position, all contained within the context of leadership. Let's grow. Welcome to Leaders and Managers Hub, the podcast. Uh, we are uh, about to fall in love, all of our own as well, with you. So um, thank you, Sean, for coming along and telling us about your story and, and, and about what you're doing and adding to the wealth of knowledge that, um, that we're hopefully imparting upon our listenership. So, so thank you for joining us. And thank um, you for having me. You're very welcome. You, in your introduction there, you talked about the three E's. Shall we start there and, uh, and open it out a little bit more? Certainly, let's do so. So the three E's are what I help people identify within themselves. And that's the education, experience, and expertise. Everybody has these, even though they don't identify them correctly or know how to leverage them. But once you can identify your education, your experience, and your expertise, you're able to build a brand around that. And it doesn't have to be formal. That's the beautiful part about it. It doesn't have to be formal education. It can be education gained through your life experiences. So what I'd like to do exactly at that point now, for two reasons. Number one, because we've already spoken in a pre-recording conversation. And, and we learned a little bit about your backstory, but also we've had a lot of feedback recently from our listeners. And, and one of the things they really point out that they enjoy is not just what our guests bring in terms of what they do, but also they love their backstories and yours is particularly interesting. So, so at that point, I'd like to just step back into your backstory a little bit, and then we'll pick it up again once we've learned a little bit about that journey to, to love. Okay, very good, very good. Where would you like for me to begin, Ray? Well, you can start as you popped out of the womb if you want, it's entirely up to you. I mean, you, you, you'd <laughs> already said in your introduction that you were a, you know, a young boy from, from Harlem, um, life was taking a particular route and then you found love. So maybe tell us a little bit about the route that you were taking and then that extraordinary transition once you had found the love. Oh, man. Okay, so I'm just a child from Harlem who God chose to show his favor and mercy through. Grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. And when I say Harlem, I mean Harlem, New York. 
Now, you don't have to be a historian to recognize or realize what took place during that time. It was the infamous war on drugs, and we saw it as the war on us, right? Or the war on crack, and we saw it as the war on Blacks. It was a very volatile and dangerous place to grow up. Many of the people that share my demographic age, gender, and space and time are no longer present. They're either buried or they're buried in the penal system, mm. right? I am one of the lucky few who were able to, by the grace of God, make it out alive and with my mind intact. And I, I put that on the grace and mercy of God, as well as being lucky enough to fall in love and take it seriously so that I made a couple different decisions in my path. Mm. Okay, so you found love, you made some decisions about direction. I do want to come back and hook on to the experience thing because I, I, I really want to open up what that experience has, like the gifts that it has given you today in the work that you do. Oh. But you, you found yeah. the love and... What, what did you do then? Well, I, this is the thing about Harlem being young, not having the right peer group. I always said that I believed, but I never allowed. So I was one of those people who said, well, I believe, but I'm still going to stick to my guns, literally and figuratively, right? I'm going to do what I know best. I'm going to take the road, often traveled, and I never let go of the steering wheel, even though I kept running into the same brick wall. <laughs> so having fallen in love and not wanting to rewrite the same book over and over again, not wanting to read the same book because I had just read this book and I had just written this book three times in succession. I said, let me try something differently because I'm at this place in my life where if I continue to go wrong, it'll probably end up very terribly. Or there's a chance for, I don't know what, but there's a chance that it might turn out differently if I try something that I had never tried before. So at that point, I submitted. At that point, I relented. I gave the reins of control over to something bigger than me. And I got out of the proverbial driver's seat in my life. And I sat down in the passenger seat and I said, wherefore thou shalt take me, I am willing to go. And the funniest thing happened, the most funniest thing in the world. At that point, I received an email on my phone and it was a solicitation. It was an ad for college. And it said, single parents who want to go back to college, we're giving a $5,000 scholarship for single parents who want to go back to school. Now, at this point, I'm 30. I'm beyond 30 years old. I'm on the other side of 30 years old. I'm single because I'm not married and I'm a parent. I saw this ad differently because I had opened myself up. So I took advantage of it and actually went through the process of going to school because that was one thing that I had started a long time ago, but I never finished. So I said, let me, let me try that route. And it absolutely transformed the trajectory of my life. And so we've gathered one of the other E's there. We've got some education. So we've now got experience and education. And at that point, then, 
you obviously had some choices to make from there. What were your options and what, what was the route that you decided to take once you had embarked upon that education? Well, there was a lot. There was a lot. Sociologically, I had to separate myself from the world because I had to concentrate and focus. And I had never done that before. I never took anything as serious. So I had to separate, right? I had to separate in order to come back and provide. One thing that Jay-Z says is that in order to be successful, you have to be successful. He says the best example that you can show people on how to succeed is not be broke. So I had to take this seriously for myself, for my children, and for my soon-to-be wife. I had to take this very seriously. So that meant I had to go inside and be comfortable isolating and being alone. I had to be comfortable saying goodbye to a demographic and a place and habit structure that I had since I was young. And that was the first step. Outside of that, Ray, I'll be honest, when I started school, my eyes could not see a computer screen. After five to 10 minutes, my eyes would water. Like there was a film or something on my eyes where my retina was not comfortable with screens because I wasn't a phone junkie. I wasn't comfortable. I'm not a millennial, so I didn't know anything about it. So when I started going to school on a computer screen, because this was online schooling, when I started looking at the computer for any amount of time, I realized that I cried. I could not look at the screen longer than 10 minutes without tears pouring down my face. So I had to go to Staples and I got a very good relationship and ran up a real large bill on reams and reams of paper because I had to print out the coursework and read the chapters off paper. That was the only way. Around my second or third year, my eyes became more accustomed to the screen. Right. So that's two struggles um, and things that I had to overcome. The third was a real course of study, an emphasis or a specialization. As I teach it in branding and in leadership and in business, you want to have a specialization. You don't want to be a generalist. So around the second year, I had an associate's in human services, and I began a bachelor's in human services. And I was working in the inner city of Harlem, and I was working with the underserved populations. So we were doing the morphine clinics, we were doing the addiction population, we were doing the reentry population. And, you know, just being mindful now, I'm looking at the economy of it and what the projections are, because I'm racking up this student loan debt. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I owe this much. I'm looking at owing this much. How much am I going to make actually as a practitioner in this field? And I looked at a list of 25 psychological um, occupations. And sad, but true, there I was. Number 25 at the very bottom of this list, substance abuse counselor in the state of New York. After 20 years, they said I could have made $65,000. After 20 years. Yeah. I said, oh, that's a problem. I realized I was smart enough to know that was a problem. So I immediately flipped the list over and I looked at the top two and it was a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And when I looked at their, their, their bullet points, one prescribed drugs, the other one dispensed drugs. And I said, hold on, I'm from Harlem. I don't need education to sell drugs. If I want to sell drugs, I'll go back to 145th Street. I said, that's not why I'm in school. So I looked at number three. And number three was an industrial and organizational psychologist 
who worked with high-level performers in the workspace. It was the science of motivation and high-level performance. And it changed my life. It opened my mind to so many different things where I could become instrumental in the lives of other people, which I was already doing as a counselor. Mm. But now I was able to do it on this level and help them to perform better, not only get off drugs, but actually transform their lives and become producers and then not just survive, but actually thrive in the marketplace and then potentially create businesses for themselves. So my mind began to shift with possibility. And that was the area of specialization that I chose to become my expertise. And that's what I dived into industrial and organizational psychology. I got a bachelor's in it. I went to um, Purdue to get that. And then I went and got a master's degree in it as well with a specialization in evidence-based coaching. And with evidence-based coaching, everything changed. My paradigm from counseling, which was a retrogressive perspective, what happened to you, psychoanalytical, to a forward-focused and future-focused goal and action-oriented process, which evidence-based coaching is. So now I didn't have to traumatize clients by saying what happened to you when you were six and ripping off a scab and then telling them in the clinical 45-minute hour, okay, I'll see you next week. Now I could actually attach their focus and their concentration on goals that were forward-focused and would help them to perform better and be more motivated than they were by telling them what happened to them. Now I'm looking at them and I'm speaking to them and I'm showing them what can happen for you. Mm. That changed everything. It's such a, when you were saying about the list, the top 25 list of sort of occupations and, and incomes, that in itself is a sad indictment of our of what we value in society that when we work with the most vulnerable we are rewarded the least yes but it's also interesting that as somebody who's i'm spending quite a lot of time at the moment reading about trauma and various various therapies that are available for trauma and ptsd and such like and there is something very significant about what you said there about where where you have people who are continually re-traumatized through this some of the conventional therapies and are locked in that trauma to suddenly have somebody turn up and go hey let's talk about your future yeah can be a massive re-decision for people i've got a future you you think i've got a future wow i've never considered that i had a future I've been living with this crap all my life and somebody's sitting here in front of me saying, let's talk about your future and what you can achieve. I can imagine that would be very powerful and profound for, for people. It really was. It really was, Ray. Um, I can remember some of the most profound conversations that I had and the actual workshops that I did. And one of them was envision it. Envision it. And I would help them literally, I would put them in front of the, the crowd in the group circle and give them a whiteboard and give them a marker and just break, I'd put four quadrants there, fours or four boxes. And I'm like, health, economy, life, and family. Health, economy, life, and family. And I'm just like, just put it all out there. Like, what does your health look like in five years? It's not where you're at now. It's not, you know, you might smoke cigarettes or, you know, you might have some problems, but where are you at in five years? What do you see? And they would write it down. And I promise you by the third bullet point, they'd be crying like babies, man. Mm. They'd be crying like babies and they'd be writing this stuff down about what they saw in their, their, in their pockets. Cause a lot of people didn't have wallets. 
watches or belts, right? So I really had to go granular down to the lowest level and say, you know, what 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 do you have in your pocket? Like they would get uh, Metro cards from the dispensary when they used to come in and leave, they'd have to get a Metro card. I said, are you, are you even taking the bus or do you have car keys? What kind of car do you have? What color is it? What does it smell like? And all of those, all of those aspects of deepening the vision just triggered things that then triggered actions. And it was absolutely transformative for every organization and client population that I did it with. Mm, absolutely. And so you talk about brand and, and leadership. And I'm interested now just to open that up a little bit to, to understand what you mean by that and how you work with that and how, how the work that you do with that works for people and organizations. Phenomenal. So through my extensive study, Right now, I'm in two doctorates. So I've got the two master's degrees and I'm in two doctorates. One of my doctorates that I'm in is a PhD for organizational development and change. And the other one is an EdD in leadership for change. So you don't learn this stuff in the preliminaries, right? You're not going to learn this in an undergrad. Most master's degrees are going to skip this by two. But when you get on a doctoral level, you find the underpinnings of these disciplines. So the underpinnings I have found in branding brand psychology, brand positioning, brand equity, in branding and leadership development are one and the same. Self-awareness, self-regulation, emotional intelligence, authenticity. Those are the core four. The core four in leadership development, if all you study is leadership development, you're gonna learn self-awareness, self-regulation, emotional intelligence, authenticity. If all you study is branding and brand voice and brand positioning, you're gonna learn, especially personal branding, self-awareness, self-regulation, emotional intelligence, authenticity. Nobody recognized that. I was able to draw the synthesis in both of them and say, hey, this is the same thing, guys. So my work is primarily with entrepreneurs and organizations helping the people within the organizations when it comes to succession planning, develop their personal leadership brand. This is what brings them attention and makes them magnetic in the marketplace. So now they're seen for higher positions, more influence, easier persuasion. When it comes to an entrepreneur, it's easy for them to develop a personal brand within the marketplace and become magnetic and attract their ideal clients while repelling their unideal clients at the same mm -hmm. time and position themselves to raise their prices, penetrate more markets, and become much more influential and persuasive in the marketplace. Mm. That's really, this whole topic fascinates me because when I was some years ago, when I was first emerging into a leadership development program, I, I just felt overwhelmed by all of these different, you know, books and everything that said, oh, to be a leader, you need to be this and you need to be that and you need to be X, Y and Z. And, and, and I was just overwhelmed with it because I was trying to be a model in air quotes leader, mm -hmm. but I didn't understand myself. And so in the unconscious, I was having all sorts of conflicts 
going on between my own values and beliefs and identity and the all of these labels that I was sort of catching in the air being thrown at me. And, and I didn't get the opportunity at that point to sort of build myself from the bottom up, like learn what my foundations are, learn who I am as a leader before mm -hmm. I start trying to be something that somebody prescribes for me. I'm wondering why this doesn't feel right. Now, I could have easily, I could have easily rejected it like a, you know, like an organ transplant. Oh, that's, this is all alien to me. Therefore, I'm going to step out of it. But luckily enough, I, I, I came across some people who were like, no, you need to, you need to identify yourself. You need to know who you are as a leader before you can even contemplate trying to fit some sort of a prescribed model if you like and that that's that's what i'm seeing in, in the work that you do it's very much about learn yourself first because if you don't do that there's always going to be conflict on a subconscious level and to know yourself you then know how you can fit in these clothes that you're being asked to wear because you know you know your own shape to use a, a metaphor Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Definitely, Ray. You you got it. And let me let me just um give a little bit more. Mm, unpack. Let me unpack why it resonated for me. So here I am at a undergrad still, but moving into a bachelor's level. And I'm early 30s, still in Harlem. And I looked at the underpinnings, right? The content inside of industrial and organizational psychology. And they said leadership and leadership coaching and leadership and organizational psychology and team building and things of that nature. So I looked at the words, they were all big words and I could always read, but I couldn't always fit into context. But now I was a little bit more intelligent because I was working on developing and critical thinking, right? I'm in my under, I'm in my undergrad, so I'm in school and, I defined it for me, leadership. And I think relatively, I think in relation, right? I think we all draw correlations too, so that when we think of leadership, we think of leaders that we know. Mm. And that's what I tried to do. However, with my ecology and my background, I wasn't able to find one that looked like me mm. or shared my background. Now we're talking about leaders and leadership. And we're talking about the difference between $60,000 in six years or a starting salary of 98, right? This is a life-changing plan for me and my family. So this is not a question of, is it possible? It's an absolute must. It's an undertaking that I have to take on. And I'm looking at this potential career and I'm saying to myself, I don't have a relational compass. I don't have a reference point. At this point, I have five children. I'm a father, four sons and a daughter. They were young. And I say to myself, well, if I'm 30 and change and I can't think of a leader that looks like me, none of my children have a reference point. They can't, they can't possibly think of a leader if I can't think of one. And that's when it became incumbent upon me. It was no longer an option. It was no longer a could be. It was a must be. It became an obligation for me to become the leader that they would have as a reference point to understand that they could take control of their lives and their futures and do whatever they 
wanted to do, be whoever they wanted to become and fashion the life that they were given as a gift by their own hands and mind. So for me, from that very, from that point, leadership has been very personal for me. Leadership, creating your personal brand, being distinctive, being decisive, having discipline, and making it a decision-based, it's always been very critical and very personal for me. So I've got a personal relationship with leadership. Mm, yeah. I spoke recently with a lady called Sheila Walsh, who's doing a PhD in inclusive leadership. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she was talking very much from the perspective of like a Western Europe perspective of one of the challenges that we have in organizations here in this part of the world is that when people look into them, when they look at the top, they see white middle-aged men. Mm -hmm. So when a lot of people are asked to sort of imagine a, a leader, most people pick out people who fit that demographic you had decided to flip the chart and you had decided that you needed to be going for the the you know some of the the top roles i had no options yeah but when you looked around you amongst your now peers what did you see you know what was being modeled for you within that that group if we can identify them as a group? Well, right, I saw the same things. I mean, I, I saw the same statistic. When I tried to think of leadership at that point, I closed my eyes and I truly tried to think of leadership, I saw the same demographic, the status quo demographic. And I said, well, if that's the case, then when my son looks in the mirror, he doesn't see himself as a leader. He sees himself as a subordinate. He sees himself as someone who's supposed to have orders given to him. And he's going to be educated that way to take orders. And it was, uh, it became a mission of mine to change the dynamic. When I came into entrepreneurship, one of the things that I wanted to do at first was to change the face of leadership, to change the face of leadership. But as I've grown in leadership, I've learned that more than just changing the face, it's adding a voice, adding a voice to leadership. Because it's not to say that every leader who fits that demographic is wrong or inherently bad. That's not the case. The case is an underrepresentation of diversity. Yeah. Yeah. And an underappreciation of privilege. Uh, I, as a middle-aged white man, don't don't acknowledge the privilege that I have because you almost end up blind to your own privilege. So I don't look around my peers and go, there's nobody here that looks like me because most people look like me. And, and so I don't, I have no perception of what it feels to look amongst your peer group and don't see anybody who looks like you. But I can and must appreciate that that very fact is my privilege. Exactly. Exactly. And one of the harshest harms that can be committed is when someone says, I don't see color. That's one of the harshest harms that can be endured, that is endured, sometimes on purpose, sometimes purposelessly by someone who just doesn't know or have that level of awareness, mm -hmm. right? That level of attitudinal awareness. 
where they just literally see themselves as a phenomenal person and they say, well, I don't see color. I don't, I don't judge people. I, I see everybody as one person. Well, that, what that does is it discounts the entire black experience mm. or any experience other than that of the person who's speaking. And that is the, one of the harshest discounts that can be afforded any member of the human race. Mm. It's one that takes into totality and wants to have the conversation or at least the acknowledgement with the human experience. Mm. Because behaviorism comes from experience. If we're gonna critique or call to account a behavior, we have to take into account the experience. And if we don't, then we're, we're, we are wantonly passing judgment and literally it becomes sentencing mm. on demographics yeah. without taking into account their heritage, culture, ecology, or experience. Yeah. And it's because of that, that diversity of heritage and culture and experience. That's why diversity and inclusion is so vital. Because if everybody in my team looks and sounds like me, we're missing such an amount of stuff. Like we're getting a lot of things wrong because we're just an echo chamber. So at the very least to have those different experiences and voices and cultural backgrounds and, you know, societal backgrounds, there is nothing more important than that within an organization and a team. Oh, yes. Mm. Absolutely imperative. Yeah. So th there's two other things I want to tease out because I know that you've, you've written quite extensively and I want to come to that. You've also, you developed some, some online tools and courses, which you had, I think when we, when we spoke previously, you said you'd kind of developed the early part of the COVID experience and you, you now put those out there. Can you tell us a little bit about those, please? Oh, definitely. So this is around the time I'm, I was probably currently in my, completing my first, I was inside of my first doctorate. I was inside of my mm. first doctorate when COVID took place. So I've gone to all but dissertation within my first doctorate and I've moved into the, the coursework of my second one. However, at this time I'm a consultant and I'm traveling for speaking. I'm speaking for organizations and I'm doing workforce development. So I'm traveling, I'm flying, I'm enjoying my life as a speaker coach, executive coach, workforce development, and then COVID happens. So the most interesting part was that I was beginning to move into a more independent space as a professional speaker. I had actually gotten some certifications and trained with some very well-known speakers, and that was my next foray. I had just been certified, actually, and was in Michigan at a ceremony and then when I came back, the plan was to begin to market for my own, you know, business. And so I'm flying around speaking for organizations, but not for myself. And then COVID happens. And they say, you can't speak anymore. You can't travel. You can't fly. You can't. Well, I don't understand can't because I'm a kid from Harlem who God chose to show his favor and mercy through, who never should have lived past 16, who definitely doesn't go to uh college and you know get two master's degrees and now I'm married and none of these things are supposed to happen to a person like me so when a person tells me I can't I immediately disagree and challenge so what I did was I began to go live 
with the tools that I had at my disposal. I'm very resourceful. And that's one thing that coming from an impoverished background helps you to become. I know people who ate ketchup sandwiches. We're very industrious in the ghetto, right? So when they told me I couldn't, I said, hold on. And I went live and I began to feed people because what we had was we had outsourced leadership. We had outsourced the leadership of our children to their caretakers in school. We had outsourced the leadership of our spouses to their bosses. So when we came home at, after work, we kind of came to a vacation and we ate real quick, got the kids in bed, went to bed, woke up and did the same thing again. We, which means we didn't really know the people that we lived with. We kind of woke up and said goodbye, did a pleasantry thing. It became a routine. How was work? How was this? Everything was fine. What are we having for dinner? Da, 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 da. How are the kids? How was your work, honey? How was school? How da, 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 da. Boom, boom, boom. Very general, non-specific, very impersonal. When COVID happened, we had to become very personal. We were locked in. So one of my, my almost dissertations, right? One of my positions during COVID when I was going live was get out from under the bed. Get out from under the bed, stop hiding. If the world is ending, because it looked that way sometimes, if you watch TV, if the world is ending, then you're going to be remembered by the annals of history for how you respond in this moment. So get out from under the bed, turn the TV off if it's giving you the chills, hug your children, hug your wife, tell them they're going to be okay because your children are looking to you for leadership. And God forbid, if there is a tomorrow, you will be remembered for how you respond today. Mm. Yes, your, your daughter and your son will always remember how terrified you were and how unable to act or how impassively you responded. They need your strength, your, your, your husbandry, your wife, your spouse needs your strength. Show up in this moment. That was the leadership education as well as the, the personality that I am because I'm the uh, high, what they call the high alpha personality where when something goes wrong on the plane, I don't run to the back, I run to the front. Mm. So in that moment, I ran to the front, opened the doors, got in the cabin, took the pilot seat and created a community of people who wanted the same thing. They wanted freedom. They wanted to be able to express themselves. It was so interesting, um, Ray. A specific demographic was sent home during COVID for safety. And another specific demographic was mobilized. Yeah. And sent to, the, sent to the front line of the workforce during the danger and the fire, right? Realistically. So I'm dealing with that too. And people who were sent home and don't know where their money's coming from, they want to create their own business and create their own economy because they feel uncertain. And then there's people who were sent to work who are afraid and want to be sent home, but won't be. So they're scared for their life too. And they see the inequality and they're like, well, why isn't my life as important as my supervisor who were just sent home and it only looks like one demographic is on the floor? What's going on here? Sean, how can I make money from home? How can I do what you're doing? So in my assessment, I realized that these phenomenal individuals all on both sides had the education, the experience and the expertise, but they didn't have a brand. They didn't know branding and they didn't know how to position or assert themselves in the marketplace. 
So that became the foundational underpinnings or the foundational knowledge in the creation of what we call branded like a leader, which was the first course that I created. Yeah. And you're still running that to this day, right? Yeah, I am. I am branded like a leader. We we did this organically. Let me say that first. I had no background in economy online. I had no background in entrepreneurialism online. I had no background in advertising, marketing, Facebook ads and campaigns, none of that stuff. I just authentically raised my voice, saw a need, a market need, an identified need and filled it. And we were able to do multiple six figures in less than 90 days in the promotion of a product that we had not even created yet because of the need for it. And then during the fulfillment of the product, during the recording of the courses, we would literally start recording around five to seven because some people still went to work. But from from nine o'clock in the morning until four o'clock in the afternoon, we were enrolling people in a course that was ongoing. So we had an open enrollment. That was a model that I remember from school. So we were doing an open enrollment and we enrolled someone on the very last day of that recording, on the very last day of it. And we made it automated. So it runs until this day. I enrolled someone into that course this morning Mm. and people, that's the flagship course. Now, since then I've gone on to certify people in evidence-based coaching, speaking, consulting, closing for high end luxury sales. So we've done more courses. However, that is, that is where I start all entrepreneurs at because of the intersection between branding and leadership development that sets the foundation who you are what you do who you do it for where you do it and why you can't build a business if you don't have that yeah it's that's really interesting because I, I get a lot of um coaching clients or potential coaching clients that come to me and they say i'm in a career i'm not really enjoying it i want to become an entrepreneur but i have no idea what like give me some ideas, give me, give me solutions, right? And I'm like, I can't help you at this point. You need to discover your identity, appreciate and account for your values and beliefs. I, I feel, I sense that people are like, yeah, I want to be an entrepreneur. And you say, okay, what does an entrepreneur look like to you? And they'll say, oh, it's like Elon Musk or, or whoever, you know? And I'm like, but you're not Elon Musk. And with the best will in the world, you're never going to be Elon Musk because you're not Elon Musk. You weren't born Elon Musk. So why would you even want to be Elon Musk? How about you find out who you are and then find out what speaks to that person. And so often we go through life and we haven't got a clue who we are. And we get, we get to midlife and we have a crisis because we don't know who we are. We've grown up with all of these labels and injunctions and everything else from parents and society and everything. And we get to the mid forties and we're like, hold on a minute. That doesn't really feel like me. Oh, I'm in crisis now because I don't know who I am. <laughs> yes, so yes, I'm, I'm yes. glad I found you. Cause I'm just going to signpost everybody to you. Yeah. So go and spend some time with Sean first. Yeah. And then when, the then when you're ready. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. As a matter of fact, it's so interesting because I spoke in ATL this weekend. I went to Atlanta and I spoke this weekend at an event and it was hosted by another coach. And he referred clients to me 
that were his clients and are still his clients, but he referred them to me because I help in that specific niche. And I was speaking to my community the other night, just last night, and I was telling them how when you find your niche and you own a specific space in your market, you no longer have competitors, you have collaborators. And the same people that you view as competitors only view you as a competitor because you're all over the place and you're trying to get every dollar that exists. So when someone says, you know, I need a coach, you'll be like, okay, I can do that. When someone says, I need my house paint, they'll say, well, I'm pretty wicked with the paintbrush too. <laughs> and that's a problem because you're a generalist now and you get low prices and you get people who don't want to work with you, don't value your specialization because you don't have any, right? So it's super important that we go deep and you can only go deep when you specialize in one thing, but you can only decide what that one thing is when you finally figure out who you are. And then what your operating principles are, what we call the MVPs are, and those are your morals, values, and principles. Once you have those, then you can say, okay, well, I tell people this. I tell them all the time. I say, first, you want to create, don't think, don't think about the business. Put meaningfulness over money, put impact over income, put value over valuation, put principle and people over profit. Stop thinking about the end result. Think about the perfect life that you want first. What does the perfect life look like for you? And then create the ideal business around that. Most people are doing it in reverse. They want a phenomenal business and realize that they've sacrificed the potential to have a phenomenal life. Yeah. So yeah. now they're successful, but they're sick of themselves and it's not sustainable. Yeah. And then we have yeah. a Whitney Houston, a Michael Jackson, a Robin Williams, Prince. Yeah. They become employees of their own perfect vision. Ah, I love it. Yeah. You just, as a matter of fact, I never thought of this term. I'm thinking of it here now. So I'm glad we're recording. You become an entrepreneurial employee. Yeah. Yeah. And then freak out because you're still not any happier than you were when you were somebody else's employee. Mm. More expensive problems. Mm. Everybody's not made to be an entrepreneur. You know, it's okay to have small problems. It's better, I would think, sometimes to have small problems that you can actually walk away from or figure out than to work your way up into a situation where your problems are about $150,000 a month and now you're backed against the wall and you don't have options. Yeah, yeah. And you're an author. Ah, yes. Yes, I am. I am. I wrote The Seven Prerequisites to Success, Pathways to Paramount Performance at a time when my mind just exploded. Quite literally, I was still in my undergrad and I had accumulated so much knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. It started as a paper for school. Mm. So I'm writing this paper for school and I finished this paper for school and I can't stop writing. <laughs> I literally can't stop writing. So I'm continuing to write and continuing to write. And then I said, hold on. After I was in for about 10 pages, I said, hold on, I got to switch this to a Word document because I was just typing, 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 typing. So I switched it to a Word document and I continued to type for about five hours. And I had given so much and I had put so much out and I looked at the page. I said, I got 15 pages here. I went to sleep, woke up the next day and I had to type. I had to continue to get this stuff out. And I said, hold on, hold on. What I'm doing right now is I'm writing a book. I, I was smart enough to know that. And I said, hold on, mm. this is a book. 
I couldn't, I couldn't read another page of information until I got all of the information at this that I had accumulated at this point in my life downloaded somewhere so I could make space for more. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the most interesting thing happened um, in school. There was a class that I absolutely loathed. And it was the beginning of my bachelor's degree. And it was an intro to human services. And during this, we were taught how to do an annotated bibliography. And it gave me such a headache (laughs) to do an annotated bibliography. But when I realized that I was writing a book, when I looked at the, the reams of pages online, I said, how can I formulate this? How can I make this make sense? The annotated bibliography came right back to me. Mm. I had my table of contents. So I literally put in this spine, this framework, and the annotated bibliography became the table of contents. So I had one, and then subchapter A, B, and C, two, subchapter A, B, and C, three, subchapter A, B, and C, and it was absolutely perfect. I literally mm. did the book in less than 30 days. This is the wow. way my mind thinks. I think mathematically, right? And I teach this now. I actually teach this in Branded Like a Leader. But I thought, I said, okay, if I can write 10 pages a day, then in a month's time, I can have 300 pages. That's a good-sized book. So that was what I set out to do, 10 pages a day. And I had the time. And I had the passion. And some days I would write 26 pages. So I actually got done with the book in 26 days. I was done. I had to do some editing. I had to do some uh, referencing. And I had to get the foreword and all that good stuff. So it took me about two years to actually publish it, but I wrote it in less than a month. And one of the most phenomenal transformative things that took place with that book is I was able to reach out to someone who had been absolutely transformative in my life. He's the number one motivational speaker in the world. And I'm lucky enough to call him a friend now. His name is Eric Thomas, the hip hop preacher, right? So he was very impactful and instrumental in my life by default before he knew me because I would watch his YouTube videos when I had no money and I was in the ghetto and trying to figure my life out. So when I finished the book and I got the edited version back, I was on the Long Island Railroad one day coming from work back to where I lived. And I got a feeling, I just got a feeling because when I got it back, it was perfectly put together. It was kitted and fitted. And I said, oh my God, this is amazing. But I immediately thought of grace and permission and mercy and who can I thank for this? And Eric was a person that came to mind. So I I responded to an email. And this is for entrepreneurs who think they don't have enough money or they don't have the connections. I didn't have the connections and I didn't have enough money. But I did have an email and I did have an influencer who was influential on me. And I did have grace and I did have mercy and I did have um, my attitude of gratitude. So all I did, Ray, was I I gave him my testimony. I thanked him for being instrumental in my life, for helping me get over things, even though he didn't know me, who I was. And I just said, listen, this is what I've been able to produce based off the, the, the value that you've given me. And I wanted to say thank you. If by any chance you come across this email, you can just let me know whether it's garbage, trash, I need to stick to my day job, or whether I've actually got something. And if I've got something, you know, Give a kid a pointer. What should I do more of? What should I stop doing? Or should I just throw this thing away and stick to my day job? And I pressed send on the email. Mm. When I pressed send, it was spiritual. I say that business is a spiritual game. But I looked at the whole thing. It was a long email, long rant. And I just said, wow, should I send this or should I not? Should I erase it or should I send it? And I pressed send. And when I pressed send, I felt this 
relief, huge relief. Fast forward four days, I'm sitting at my desk in my job in the Bronx and I get an email and it's from one of Eric's handlers. And he says, Sean, Eric saw your book and he loves it. If you can put off publishing for a couple of weeks because he's very busy, he would love to do the foreword for you. Wow. I, I had to get out of my seat and go put some <laughs> cold water on my face because I didn't think I was awake. He confirmed yeah. for me that I was really who I thought I might be becoming. It was transformational. Uh, and even, even more so, I'll, I'll just wrap that part up with this, how important it is to follow your dreams and follow through on sending the message and taking the chance and taking the leap. When I finally got the foreword back from him, I was sitting, I was sitting in a hospital. My mother was in the ER fighting for her life and I was in the waiting room waiting for my son to come. And I got the email with his logo and the words that he said in, in praise and admiration and edification of the book and myself as the writer. And it was it was another spiritual moment. And it was hard to believe again. And I'm, I'm looking down, I'm thinking at it, about it right now, as I'm saying, I was looking at my hand, looking at the phone in disbelief. At such a bad, hard time in my life. And I looked up and my son was getting off of the elevator. And that was a breaking point. It was a breaking and a making point for me. Wow. There's so much in there, Sean. I mean, just <laughs> the general point that, you know, if the email remains in our draft folders, we're never going to get a response. We've only ever get a, got a chance of getting a response if we actually have the courage to hit send. But it's just so interesting how, like earlier on in our conversation, you talked about getting out of the driver's seat and into the passenger seat and saying, hey, look, this is going to take me where it's going to take me. And then, you know, having the courage to hit that send button and it's it's going to take you where it's going to take you. Um, so, the, yeah, there's, there's yeah massive themes in there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I can fast forward to, so my mother, she overcame that, right? But she never really got well, but she overcame that. So she's back and forth a little bit to the, the home ER hospice, back and forth, kind of like a triangle. But the actual physical book did come to me before she passed. So she was actually able to see from her bed the book done. She remembered when I started writing this thing. And now it was actually finished. Remember how I said I had to go back and finish some things? I was a chronic starter. So you probably have a lot of listeners who are chronic starters. Phenomenal. They look phenomenal busting out of the gate. I always say this to my clients that every horse looks the same at the gate. All mm. dogs look the same at the gate. You don't have much to do to win at the gate. The race isn't for the swift at the gate. Mm. The race, the championship comes to those who can endure. So leadership comes out around the eighth or ninth lap. Mm. Yeah. I was just about to say, it's not, not just our listeners. Uh, among the, the presentation crew, uh, I can certainly hold my hand up and say I'm, I'm great in the first 10 yards, but um, I, I don't always look so good when I get to the finish line. Yeah, as long as you make it, that's what counts. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so long yeah. as it's not hurdles, I'm okay. If it's just a straight yeah. sprint, you know, I will waddle my way to the end one way or the other. Oh, thank you very much. Here we are today in 2022. I'd just be interested to hear a little bit about both for the, let's call it the industry that you work in and for you personally, what's, what's the future look like for you? Hmm. Well, number one, there's a $68 trillion wealth transfer taking place right now. $68 trillion wealth transfer. It's one of a kind event has never happened before and it's happening now. So the future for the industry is absolutely phenomenal. This is a $9 billion a year industry when it comes to personal and professional development. Uh, leadership, people are looking more towards leadership, branding, marketing, uh, character development. These are huge industries that I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of yet. So there's a, there's a huge um, interest in personal development, professional development, and non-formal levels and ways of education, ways of knowing. We're moving into a completely different age, more like a knowledge era. So we've gone from the agricultural to the, to the industrial, to the technological. And now we're almost in that knowledge era where people are realizing that I can control my own life with the powers in my head and the things that I know and I can create a market for myself and brand myself. The gift of the internet has given us the ability to do that. So it's really unestimable when it comes to where this can go as an industry. I think it's becoming much more holistic. I think it's becoming much more human-centered. I believe that a lot of the COVID people will wear off and it will become back to regulation where you actually have to have a skill and ability to provide value. So that's a good thing. Um, for me, we're doing an event in Myrtle Beach very shortly in August. That's one thing that we're doing. We're also looking to begin marketing like a leader in September. I'm doing a course on courses where I'll be teaching entrepreneurs how to create courses so they can sell these courses down the line. This is a style of teaching that you're able to set, let, and never forget or regret because you can continuously get paid for it. We're still getting paid from Branded Like a Leader and we're still helping legions of entrepreneurs through that course that we did two years ago. Right. Mm. So there's, there's so much power in automation and technology that we're able to leverage through systems and processes that have never been tapped into before for individuals and organizations alike. And as a foresight, I think in 10 year leaps and bounds, I don't think in the two year business plan, I think in 20s and 10s and 20s. And one thing that I was saying to a person that is helping to plan out the event in Myrtle Beach, as I told him, I can't wait till we start doing these in Dubai and Hong Kong and Shanghai and can really become more international. I have a vision where entrepreneurs and business leaders are coming together and being able to input their humanistic perspective and have the economy and insight to weigh in on policy. God knows the world needs it. <laughs> and for you personally, I mean, your story is one of, for me, 
like on a personal level, you've rewritten a narrative. You've, you've written a narrative now that young people who had the same cultural and societal experience as you did when you were little can read and go, hold on a minute, there's, there's an option, there's another path. You are now the person that, that wasn't visible to you when you were looking for people who looked like you. And, and you're now the person that your son can see and people like your son can see, wow, there's somebody who looks like me. So for you personally, like you've achieved so much, what do you want for yourself personally in 5, 10, 20 years, whatever timescale you want to put on it? Ooh, that's a good one. I, you know, our work is so selfless that we don't really think of ourselves in the, um, in the context. So that's an interesting question. What I look for for myself, which I have now, just so that we're clear, is, a, I guess, a deeper sense of fulfillment. I have the fulfillment now. I get the fulfillment every time someone gets that aha moment. However, being able to look back. So I, I have like LeBron just opened a school. Sean Combs opened a school in Harlem. Those are my long reaching goals. Like I would love to be able to open a school. I would be love to be able to have a college of entrepreneurship. We actually have a Rye East International School of Leadership and Business in mind. So those are the kind of things that I look forward to when it comes to um, things that I want for myself. When it comes to legacy, it's a legacy of impact and generational narrative transformation and empowerment. And I guess if you haven't already had one, perhaps an email from somebody who says, hey, this is what you did for me. Yeah, that would be, we do get those, but I promise you, whenever I get something like that, I literally, this is, I'll tell the story. I know we're, approaching the close so bear with me um, yeah no worries i was with my personal assistant and we were landing at a speech that i was giving and as soon as we landed i was able to change the airplane mode off your phone so i took the airplane mode off my phone and i got an email and the email was from a woman and i didn't know who she was at first she said hey sean thank you so much for helping me, this, that, and the third. And I said, who is this? I don't know who this is. So I looked at my um, text messages and she said, she had a picture. She said, I know you don't remember me. So this is my picture. And it was an employee that I had worked with from about five to six years ago, right? I, I was doing consulting at the same place where she was employed and she saw my book and she had a picture of my book. And she said, because of your, your inspiration, I went back to school and she had a PDF and the PDF showed me that she was 60 credits away from her dissertation. I said, wow. so things like that just light me up on the inside because, you know, it's, it's almost to some degrees, in some ways it can be thankless hmm. in the services industry. It's still the services industry. It's just a higher level. So sometimes we live in a thankless industry where we're always giving and serving and that's what we are supposed to be doing. So we're not giving back to, however, Sometimes someone says, thank you. And when that happens, it's worth more than its weight in gold. 
Yeah. When actually see the impact. So again, back to those, those checks and balances and those scales. You want to put meaningfulness over money, impact over income, and people over profit. You'll get the latter as long as you address the former. Props, the most profound words for people to take away. Um, and, and in the modern era, never, never more profound. Sean, I'm, I'm mindful that one of the things we want to do with all our guests is, is honor everything that they want to convey in the conversation. So is there anything in particular that you feel we haven't touched on yet that you would like to get out there? No, I think we've addressed it all. And I thank you for allowing me the forum to do that. And the word that comes to mind in that context is authenticity. You know, this wasn't scripted. We, we were authentic. We just let it flow, right? And we're natural about it. And I think that's when the best human expression comes out, when you don't script when you yeah. are authentic, when you really are the person. Well, I have to say as well, it really helps with, with somebody like yourself because you really are the gift that keeps on giving in, in that respect. You know, um, a, a one-shot podcast probably really doesn't do it justice, but, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully people will have got a sense of you and, and they'll be able to seek you out and we'll put links to, you know, your books and, and your social media and everything on the, um, on the biography for the, for the podcast as well. So people will be able to find you and, and follow you as I'm sure a lot of people will want to do. Thank you. I, I did want to add this and that is that the quality of the answer is determined by the quality of the question. Right. So if this sounded good or it flowed effortlessly or there was an impact, it's based on the quality of very, very good questions. So I thank you for that, Red. Thank, thank you, you very much. It, for, for me, my technique is just to be incredibly curious. And I, I am a, a curious fellow. And as a, as a child, I was encouraged not to be curious. Curiosity kills the cat and all that sort of thing. And one of the things I've learned about my own personal brand, and it is also intrinsic to my leadership style, is I'm incredibly curious. Okay. And I don't have to, I don't have to have all the answers. I'm I'm comfortable to sit in the passenger seat with somebody else in the driver's seat and we go on a journey. Very good. Very good practice. And so it just remains for me to to say with deep appreciation, I really really glad that we've had this conversation i thank you very humbly for for coming along and talking to us and i wish you the very best for the future well thank you very much ray thank you so much for having me i'm always um enamored and always it's my life's work to serve so i greatly appreciate a platform that's extended to me to reach more people and to be of any value to them possible so thank you for that They didn't set limits. Are you a follower or a visionary? Can you handle the load that you were meant to carry? Because we're on a mission. Listen, it's beyond description. We don't want to fit in if we're living in a contradiction. We need a brand of passion.